Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Return on India is the latest release in the Colossus family of podcasts. For full transcripts and more supporting materials, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you will find the full library of content from Colossus shows like Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns, Founders, 50X, and now Return on India. If you'd like to stay up to date on all announcements for Return on India and other Colossus shows, make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter again on joincolossus.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Welcome to the first episode of our new series, Return on India. I'm your host, Ramin Shah. India is a country filled with nuance, contradictions, and ambition for the future. And throughout this podcast series, I'm excited to share why I believe the next decade will belong to India. The first few episodes will focus on the macro story, the technological and demographic building blocks that lay the groundwork for future success. Then we'll explore individual sectors, from e-commerce to gaming to fintech. All throughout, we will speak with investors, founders, and executives contributing to the next generation of Indian business. My guest today is Sajit Bhai, a general partner at one of India's leading early-stage venture firms, Bloom Ventures. Sajit and the team at Bloom put together a fantastic report recently on the rise of India's startup ecosystem, and it gives us the perfect entry point into this series. We discussed the right way to segment India's consumer class, the tech trifecta enabling economic growth, and why the startup playbook for India is so different to the United States. Please enjoy my conversation with Sajid. Sajid, I'm thrilled to have you on today. 
we're going to go deep into what's going on in the Indian startup ecosystem today and really peel back layers to get a better understanding of the country at large. There's so many places we can begin, but I want to start by exploring a phrase you've used, which I think is an interesting entry point to understanding India. India is a country of contradictions. What do you mean by that? Thank you, Romain. So there is a popular saying that whatever is said about India, the opposite is true too. I always felt that that's a great metaphor to view the country through. For example, in the report that I released a few months back, I spoke about pilots. So India, for example, has the highest proportion of women pilots. 12.5% of all pilots in India are women. And this is a country which also is wrestling with huge declining female labor participation. We started last decade with 25% women in the workforce, declined to 19% since COVID. I always find these contrasts fascinating. Another example that I like to quote is, we have this really shining, sparkling, state-of-the-art payment infrastructure called UPI. It's like sending a message or clicking a picture, like a QR code or just using a phone number. But when it comes to our e-commerce, it's an interesting and rather telling stat that as much as half of e-commerce payments are through what's called cash on delivery, which is that people wait for the good to be delivered and then they pay cash. Sometimes it could also be UPI, for example, but it's fascinating, these contrasts. And that is perhaps what I mean by India as a country of contradictions. And that's one of my favorite metaphors to view India. It's interesting to double-click or unpack some of those contradictions because the conclusion I take away from that explanation is externally, outside of India, we really think of India homogeneously. We look at headline numbers, like the country has over a billion people in population, and it's very common to extrapolate things like market size, applicability of certain business models, whereas the reality is the country is really intricate and complex. I'm curious from your perspective, what's the right framework by which we can segment and understand that consumer class in India? This is something I've thought through a lot. And one framework that has really become a fairly popular framework is the three or I dare say four Indias. So India is not one, but India is actually four Indias. So let me unpack that a little bit. The overall headline number is India, 1.4 billion. It's the second largest or the largest now populated country in the world per capita income, just over 2K per annum. And so that makes it around 2.8 to $3 billion GDP, fifth or the sixth largest, depending on the exchange rate and how we look at it. And of course, some people also say huge middle class, vibrant, growing. All of that is true in a way, except that when you actually unpack it, we actually can peel India into India 1. India 2, India 3, and what I call India 1 Alpha. India 1 is really the India as most people understand. About 110 million people who buy from Flipkart or Amazon, watch Netflix, have coffee at Starbucks, etc., etc. A rough per capita income would be around $10,000. It dares about third to about 40% of the overall Indian GDP. I think of it as a Mexico sitting in India. Mexico has similar characteristics, about 120, 130 million people, 10 to 12, 11K per capita income, rough approximation. So India 1 is really the India that all of Indian startups go after. They are digitally native, they're comfortable paying with credit cards. India has only 35 million credit card users. It's extremely low. It's about a billion population, but just 35 million credit card users. 30 million households which have four-wheelers or cars. So it all approximates to that. India too is the emerging India. 
they got about the internet about five, six years back when Jio's entry crashed the prices of bandwidth. And that's a story in itself. So India does come aboard. They are new users. They buy differently. They're not comfortable with clicking on uh, colored rectangles on flat glass screens. They buy very differently. They like to use voice. 28% of India's search is voice. It's a Google stat. So that's about 100 million people, about $3,000 per capita income. So think of them as Philippines, very similar numbers. India 3 is a rest. They're some way off. I don't think they have the income to be able to afford most of the goods. They're just about subsistence. 1.2 billion people, about $1,000 per capita income, give or take 100 here and there. I would think of them as sub-Saharan Africa minus South Africa. The other one I found particularly useful is to think of a smaller sliver of India 1 as India 1 Alpha, about 25 million people, English native, very comfortable with English, use English. I call them English fluence as well sometimes. You can think of them as a cross between Taiwan and Poland. There's no equivalent country as comfortably, but Taiwan's size with Poland's per capita income is India 1 Alpha. They are really the upper end of India 1. So these are frameworks I found very useful. This is a lens through which I view India. and Increasingly, that's become popular as well in the Indian startup ecosystem. I think comparing any of these segments to their counterpart, like India 1 in Mexico or India 2 in the Philippines, et cetera, is really interesting because I think it actually breaks down some nuances and characteristics of how to think about the venture ecosystem. So one way to think about the Indian venture ecosystem, if we just think about India 1 and comparing it to Mexico and taking the statement subject you just said, which is most of the startups in India are attacking India 1, is the Indian venture ecosystem is heavily overfunded. It has over 20x the funding of Mexico's market when you adjust for how large that consumer class actually is. But maybe the flip side is thinking the opportunity is generational and the funding is going into these companies because they start out as India 1 players, but financing gives them the opportunity to expand into India 2, India 3. How do you think about that as someone that's evaluating these companies on the ground every day? Is that a realistic extrapolation? How do you think about that? That is a realistic explanation. If you look at, for example, the Indian venture market, last year, about $35 billion came into the Indian economy, and that's almost as much as UK got. It's either the third or fourth largest after USA, China. And Mexico is about a 20th of that, despite similar demographics, so to say. I do think that India 1 is growing fast, maybe not as fast as we like it to, but it is growing. I think the hope is that India 1 will move from a Mexico to a Brazil, which is 200 million large, slightly lower per capita income. And so India 2 will collide into India 1 to make a larger India 1, 2 bucket. That's the hope. So there is sort of a land grab on. We're also seeing very interesting India 2 native models emerge. Misho was a fantastic experiment. ShareChat is another. And there are a bunch of these experiments. Flipkart, Amazon, they've done a great job of trying to expand, make their product attractive, discovered new attack vectors into India 2. So all of that is underway. The hope is that India 2 will eventually grow into an India 1 and India 2 will become a more homogeneous mass, but there's still some way away. The other one also is that investors do find the market attractive also because there's one interesting subside factor, which is really the Indian diaspora being plugged very strongly into Silicon Valley. Unlike, for example, the German diaspora, the Japanese diaspora, both extremely wealthy countries, far wealthier than India, 
But I think the way the Indian diaspora is plugged into Silicon Valley makes easy for talent to flow into each other's markets, capital flows from the Valley into India. So while there are powerful demand side factors, but India and India's venture success story, India's startup success story is as much supply driving demand as much as demand leading to supply coming in. One of the most interesting things that I just pulled out from what you said is basically unbundling this idea of building X for India. So a lot of generation one success stories had an X for India flavor, very reminiscent of companies from the US, I think for two reasons. One is the addressable market was mostly the economically fluent and parallel to the Western consumer class, like you said. And I think for Western investors, it actually makes it a lot easier to understand when you frame a company as X for India. But to penetrate India 2 and beyond, or even this new India 1, as it becomes more of a homogenous block of today's India 1 and India 2, the products are going to need to be a lot more native to India first use cases. You mentioned Misho, for example, as an experiment. Maybe you can unpack this idea of going from X for India to India native use cases. And maybe you could use a couple examples to draw that out. Misho is a great example. When it took shape, it was a very interesting way of doing commerce. Rather than sell directly to consumers, they used sort of the approach that Amway pioneered in a way of using women entrepreneurs, typically housewives, many of them, to curate their own collection, their own store, send it via WhatsApp to their friends, get an order and send it ahead to Misho. Misho would then deliver it, etc. So that was fascinating because Misho understood that Indian market lacked trust. India is a country where trust is a bit low. And when your friend, when someone you know, sometimes your relative, sometimes your cousin, sometimes your friend is curating something and sending it, or someone you know in the vicinity of your house is curating this and sending it, and you have recourse to go to that person and ask for an issue if something goes wrong, you typically tend to buy. That turned out to be true. That was a pioneering model. There are many Misho for X place coming up in Nigeria, in Latin America as well. Misho is an interesting example of an India to native startup. Another one is ShareChat. Think of it as an Indian TikTok, or you can think of it as an Indian Twitter or Instagram. It's unique. They disavowed English. They said, we will not have an English language segment or a group in their phone. They support all other languages, but will not support English. People coming in, India to users coming in, felt very comfortable with it. There is intercity, for example, which is bus transport, which is very popular. And there's no equivalent US startup. This is Greyhound, but Greyhound is not a tech-enabled startup. So these are examples of India to native. The other one that I find particularly interesting is even India One, for example. There's a company called MyGate. It's not exactly next door. It fundamentally understands that the elite of India are gravitating towards gated complexes for security, for affinity. These gated complexes needed a software to manage that, and they've created this interesting thing. It's not exactly next door. It's very different. Urban Co. is another example. Very low labor costs in India. So you can call your beautician, which you couldn't really do in a Western country, be forbiddingly expensive. You can call someone for a massage or even an electrician. So these are unique examples. And you rightly said, the first five years of the last decade was really the X for India use case, like Amazon for India was Flipkart, Uber for India was Ola. Today, there are far more braver experiments emerging, take advantage of the unique works that India has of the kinks that exist in the Indian consumer market. And is it possible to build a company in today's India market from your perspective of, again, we take this framework of India 1 Alpha, India 1, 2, and 3. 
is it possible for a company to build for multiple segments of that Indian consumer class? Or when you look at companies, there are these unique chasms or challenges to cross from a product perspective, a marketing perspective, et cetera, when building for these different segments. I'm curious if there are companies, startups in the Indian ecosystem you see that are successfully bridging multiple layers of that consumer stack. Not too many. And I jokingly say that the startups that succeed in India on and India too are verb startups, shop or watch. So to that extent, Hotstart, for example, they're like Netflix for India in a way. They're pretty big. Flipkart is pretty big. Amazon is pretty big. And they do appeal to India one as well as India too. TikTok was another. Instagram is another one now. Outside of those verb startups, it's been a lot more challenging. The metaphor that, again, I like to use is of taxes. And products first need to be born in India, one, because that is a consumer engine. That is where the money is. That's where the users are. And you typically start with that. And when you start with India, one, and when you design for India, one, you imbue the product with what I call a very powerful English tax. It doesn't mean just that every screen is in English. It also means that the UIs and the design is English native. It's a developed market native. For example, shopping cart. Shopping cart is intuitively understood by most elite Indians and most people in the West. But India has only about 10% of the retail economy as modern retail. Many Indians have not seen shopping carts. I think some of this has changed now, but Amazon in the late part of the last decade found that a lot of the people saw the magnifying glass or the search one as ping pong bats. So interesting confusion. The design and the nature of design language and English language lead to what I call an English tax. Vice versa, if a product is born in India too, then it becomes hard to appeal to India one because India one has slightly more evolved taste, more evolved design sense. I've not seen too many instances of products breaking through other than what I call the verb products. Yeah, I think it's really helpful to understand how diverse that consumer stack actually is in India. I mentioned earlier that the Western view is very much so looking at the headline numbers and extrapolating business models and use cases. It's interesting to look in parallel what has actually enabled the rise of that consumer class. What's enabled the rise of India, especially from the West, is looking as a very attractive destination for global investment and global innovation. When you evaluate the Indian ecosystem, what are the drivers that stand out to you that have really enabled this growth? Because I think those that are in India and certainly those that are not in India that have studied India know this growth has been very recent and very rapid. Trying to study the rise of what we jocularly call Indus Valley as a sort of pun on Silicon Valley. A few factors come to the forefront. You can think of them as very powerful forcing functions or growth drivers, really. One clearly is what I like to call the Wang trifecta. This came out of a conversation I had with Tony Wang, the co-founder and CEO of Agora. He said that the Chinese economy took off when three things happened. Three factors came together. He said it's cheap bandwidth, a smartphone in every pocket, and a frictionless payment system. That's what happened in India about three to four years back when Geo, UPI, and smartphone penetration all combined to create conditions right for the bank trifecta to happen? That has led to a tremendous upsurge of users and some consumers. If you look at, for example, Hotstar, ShareChat, all the media companies, they saw explosive growth, an academy, a tech, Baiju's, so explosive growth in video consumption thanks to that because bandwidth was cheap. 
Some of those users also became consumers in Flipkart and Urbanco and Misho, etc. That's certainly one factor. There has been a steady rise in income over the past decade, especially India won $10,000 per capita income. The upper echelons would be like $20,000 per capita income. They have standards which are on par with some of the Western countries. That's been driving through the consumption as well. There's also been an evolution of the Indian startup ecosystem. We've had the older startups, which is another generation, the flip cards of the world, the urban core, the me shows. On the SaaS side, for example, you have Freshworks, you have Zenoti, you have Drua. All of them have had people either coming out of that as employees who want to start up, or some of those who have found exits want to kind of come in. The Indian startup ecosystem has evolved. And you have repeat founders, which didn't exist in India. Second time founders, we call them fluent founders. They have started to come. So this is kind of a flywheel of talent happening. There has been a systemic improvement in the infrastructure layer. So e-commerce is a great example. Delivery is an Indian unicorn which went for an IPO. And there are a bunch of such players who cater to the e-commerce companies in India who make delivery reasonably friction-free. Then you've had, for example, the public digital infrastructure, which is another forcing function, which is your UPI and Aadhaar, for example, which is sort of the identity layer, enables payments and multiple, many other use cases. So I would say the Vang trifecta, the rise in incomes, the talent that's come in, the infrastructure improvements, and finally, public digital infrastructure. These are what I see as the five pillars or five growth drivers behind the Indian startup ecosystems. And so let's dig into those a little bit more deeply. I think the Wang trifecta, you explained it really articulately. This idea of you need cheap bandwidth, you need people to actually use that bandwidth with a smartphone in every pocket, and then you need people to be able to transact with that bandwidth and connect with them with a frictionless payment system. The most interesting thing to me and probably to folks that are listening is getting a concept or an understanding of just the rate of change in those three things since 2015, less than a decade. To me, when you actually look at these graphs, it's amazing how stark the rate of changes go into the next level of detail on these things like bandwidth, smartphone, frictionless payment system, just for us to get a sense of how rapidly that ecosystem is actually changing. Geo came in and Geo was an audacious bet, which is paid off completely. Geo came in when the Indian consumer was paying something like three and a half dollars for one gig. And the number of mobile internet users were just about 25 million. The home broadband users at the time were about 15 million. Internet in India itself was not democratized. Since then, Jio came in and cut prices dramatically. All the others followed suit. So one gig today costs something like 8 cents, not even 10 cents, 6 rupees. So mobile data prices fell from 268 rupees to 6 rupees over the course of seven years for 2014 to 2021. Mobile internet users went the other way from 25 million to about 700 million. So they grew about 30x. Home broadband is very interesting. Hasn't grown in India. It just got leapfrogged by mobile internet. The number of home broadband users, like the number of car owners or the number of credit card users, hasn't grown dramatically. It's 25 million today. So it's at exactly where mobile internet users were. So look at this as a double click onto how, for example, the van traffic has played out. The last one is UPI, the frictionless payment system, unified payments interface. It's something that Indians are very proud about. Just to give you a little bit of data, last month, 
we did about $134 billion of transactions through UPI. But 75%, three-fourths of these were peer-to-peer. So me paying you, for example, via UPI. And it's as easy as sending a message. About $30 billion is really users paying merchants. Like I paid my Uber driver today through UPI. I paying for water or chai or anything like that. And this is interesting stats. The $30 billion, which is peer-to-merchants, P2M, is actually more than credit cards and debit cards put together. So credit card spent last month was $14 billion and debit cards were $8 billion. So when you add the two of them together, UPI's merchant payments exceed that of credit cards and debit cards. And that's a telling stat. The change has been dramatic. And UPI didn't exist till 2016. It's unbelievable. And actually, it tethers an interesting concept to me, which is this concept, and you just mentioned it, of leapfrogging. I want to understand that concept of leapfrogging more from you. I think when we look at the startup ecosystem in India, let's take fintech, for example. Startups have been able to acquire those user bases that have taken legacy brands decades to build. I mean, the market share of brokerage accounts since 2015, 2016, this time frame period subject you were referring to, has gone from something to the tune of 100% legacy, 0% fintech to 64% legacy and 36% fintech. Maybe talk about that concept of leapfrogging a little bit, because I think that's interesting for folks outside of India, and it spells a little bit more detail and gives a little bit more evidence to what we were talking about earlier, which is this idea of the next real great generation of Indian startups that build natively for India use cases versus being X for Y type companies. Leapfrogging is actually a fascinating concept. It's a very integral part of Indian tech. And you see it not just with brands, but you also see it with categories. UPI over credit cards is, of course, a recent example of that leapfrogging. And also I touched upon mobile internet over home broadband. EVs over cars is happening very fast. Early signs are there. The fundamental reason leapfrogging happens is that when a new technology comes, a lot of people who did not get access to the earlier version of the technology, like computers and mobile phones, if you go into India too, and when I say India too, I don't necessarily mean tier two India. I mean, every city in India will have its India one, India two, and India three. Bombay will, a smaller city like Chandigarh will, and so on. When you actually go into India too and talk to a mom and pop store, you'll find the mom and pop store does not have a computer because power is not regular. Wi-Fi broadband hasn't gone up because of same reason, power. Power is not super regular, even in the larger cities in India, maybe other than Bombay, Delhi, Bangalore. So what it means is a lot of people don't keep a computer and they're not comfortable with the UI. The mobile phone, they're very comfortable with. They use a mobile phone as an entertainment device, as a calculator, as a torch, as a payment system, and everything is done on it. So with the mobile phone and the smartphone, really, started growing, everybody adopted it. And that gave an opportunity for startups to find a new attack vector into the Indian consumer. Take advantage of the smartphone's native UIs and attack this. That is fundamentally why leapfrogging exists. And the example that you gave was of digital brokerages. The hero there is a company called Zeroda, which for 10 years back hardly had any share. But today it is the largest by far. It's completely bootstrapped. It's an amazing success story. It's not taken one single rupee of venture. Every VC they had a stake in it. 
some very fascinating stories coming out of India. And I think a lot of it is to do with the fact that all of the leapfrogging is really riding on the mobile phone's growth and penetration. One Academy is an interesting story. One Academy is a portfolio company of Bloom. They started in 2015 as a YouTube channel. And today they're one of the leading test preps in India. And India is a huge test prep market because the product of the design for the mobile phone and making it easy to consume bite-sized content on the mobile phone. When you pair together this idea of leapfrogging, so you get new use cases and you take the Wang trifecta, there's this second pillar of the five that you were mentioning that's equally foundational. And you mentioned this in passing earlier, India's low trust economy, this idea of public digital infrastructure, and maybe we can unpack Aadhaar and use that as the explanation for this concept of public digital infrastructure becomes especially interesting because now what we're saying is with cheap bandwidth and smartphones, you're bringing users, you're bringing these native use cases. You have a frictionless payment system like UPI, so you can actually transact and include those people into the economy. But trust is still a big piece of figuring out the efficacy of that consumer base. Aadhaar has made a huge difference in solving that. So maybe we can go a little bit deeper into that second pillar that you were mentioning and use Aadhaar as an example. Aadhaar actually means identity. A lot of the people in India, out of the 1.4 billion, about 100 to 150 million people had clear identities, like they had paper and documents which were recognized in the United States, but 5% of people pay tax in India and so on. Aadhaar actually conferred an identity on them. And what it did is gave them a document which said, hey, this is you, this is your bank account, and you are known to the state via this number. A lot of people thought Aadhaar was overbearing and all that, but actually people have loved it. People in India, especially India 2 and India 3, love that they have an identity in the eyes of the state. Once I had this amusing phone call with a Uber driver, he took a phone call from this person who was selling him a credit card and I said, hey, that's spam, don't take it. He said, no, I feel good they're calling me. I've never been called to be sold a card or anything like that. I feel good. That's an example of the power of conferring identity and status. What Aadhaar has done is really given identity to this one. But it's also beyond that, an identity layer in Indian public digital stack. So what it means is every UPI transaction is built on Aadhaar. There's an API call happening. It's one of the largest, most called APIs in the world, I think. I don't know which ones are bigger. It's actually tied at the hip with UPI. And all other payment infrastructure uses Aadhaar a lot. Fundamentally, you can think of it as identity as the API. That's really one of the layers that's really supported the growth of the Indian startup ecosystem. Allied to that are a bunch of alphabet soup layers or public digital applications. OKIN, which is Open Credit and Enablement Network. There's ONDC, Open Network for Digital Commerce. All of them trying to do what I call disaggregation. Because in a way, UPI is like a disaggregation layer where it removes the need for very powerful central forces to actively engage. It says, just have this loose configuration of infrastructure, and you can pretty much design your front end and use this as a back end. And so a bunch of these ONDCs for commerce, and there are some interesting experiments underway. So ONDC makes it possible for me to use, for example, like a phone pay, which is a very popular payments app in India. And I could see a link on phone pay and click on it. And phone pay doesn't have to set its own warehouses up, it can just link to a retailer who can use a Dunzo or a Swiggy, which is really India's DoorDash, to deliver that. So disaggregating and enabling loose coupling is really what all of these public digital infra provide. In the Indian public digital infrastructure project, a very important component of the Indian startup ecosystem, 
Several interesting startups are going to emerge in the next few years, leveraging this. In some ways, I like to think of it as China has these shiny bridges and metro stations. India probably has them too, maybe not as shiny, but our real shiny infrastructure layer is the public digital infra layer. And double click into that a little bit more, because one of the things we've talked about offline before is this idea that India is a data challenged country. You have this phrase that I really like, which is you understand Western economies through data and you understand India through anic data, anecdotes yeah. and yeah. data. Obviously, public infrastructure efforts like this push the country much more into the direction of data orientation. There's two elements here. One is this idea of pushing the country in the right direction from a data back perspective. But then the other is this emergence of cutting a bit more across these data platforms and unlocking new types of use cases and new types of opportunities. Just on the last statement, you were saying the rise of this public infrastructure is going to be interesting for new use cases and new startups to come about. How should we be thinking about that outside in? Let me try and give you an example. So one of the Alphabet Soup public digital infra app is OCEN, O-C-E-N, Open Credit Enablement Network. That along with what's called account aggregator, an account aggregator framework is fundamentally, I don't have to physically send all my credit rating scores and my last six months bank accounts to them. But if I'm approached by a lender, I could say, hey, here is my Aadhaar. You can access the following data because I've given permission to the account aggregator. And that is a specific company which uses that framework. And they will provide this data in a tokenized fashion, masked to the lender who can pass it through a framework, through their algorithms, and determine whether I'm entitled for X percent. They can determine that it's a higher credit risk or is a lower credit risk, etc. It enables easier sharing of information between parties. And it also enables new use cases, such as, let's say I'm a restaurant and I'm on Swiggy or Zomato, which is like the DoorDashes or Postmates of India. I've been supplying to Swiggy for the last so many years, but it's hard getting working capital in India. But I can, for example, provide this data. Swiggy doesn't have to physically send the data to any party. Through this framework, the lender can pull this data and see that for the last six months, my growth on Swiggy and Zomato has been like a hockey stick. I'm a great credit risk. Another example, I'm an Uber driver and I could use the data from Uber to get a loan. Someone could look at it and say, why well, is not a salaried individual. For the last six, nine months, he's been consistently earning more than 40,000 rupees a month, more than $500 a month. And this means that he can get this loan, which was typically only for the salaried people. This is sort of the power of public digital infra that enables new use cases to emerge thanks to the easy access to data. This is what the public digital infra project is about. There are many other layers to it, multiple other alphabetical combinations, but I think UBI, OCAN, ONDC, Aadhaar, these are the really fundamental building blocks. Some of the other ones are there, but they tend to be a little smaller. I think it's really helpful to understand both the larger, if we take a step back of what we've talked about so far in the conversation, it's really helpful to double click in on the consumer class. And then it's really helpful to double click on what are these elements or factors that are powering this change in India, because I think it gives a lot of context to the Indian startup ecosystem. So now I want to transition and talk about the Indian startup ecosystem with this context, basically a background. There's a couple key phases. I think the best place probably to start on the Indian startup ecosystem is give a little bit more detail on the key phases that the ecosystem has gone through in India to just get a better sense of how the business models have evolved, 
and really how the mindset has evolved of people that are building these companies in India today. I like to think of the Indian startup ecosystem as going through waves. If we started off in 1988, and I've tried to dig through historical records, and I think 1988 was when the first venture transaction happened in India. The first venture fund, so to say, was set up. There onwards, we had a very tiny venture market funding a lot of the ITES players, then funding some consumer plays unique to India. But a lot of them were really quasi-debt structures in the way they were structured. Not Silicon Valley type venture plays or even Silicon Valley type startups. There was a mini boom in 99-2000 and then what happened? It all came crashing down. And after that, the Indian ecosystem also completely died down. And then somewhere in the mid-2000s, there was a small wave, and I call this the wave one, which is for the next five years, 2004 to 10, had a bunch of unique, not necessarily X for India startups. They certainly were about getting India abroad from offline to online. Red bus is an interesting example of enabling people to travel by different buses or in local transport. Nokri, for example, which is helping you get jobs. Think of them as classified sites, enabling transactions. Make My Trip is another very popular company which came during this period. And then came the 2010 to 16, which is when Flipkart, Swiggy, Inmobi, for example. So a lot of the SaaS startups started becoming popular during then. Freshworks, Inmobi, all of them were born or came of age during this era. So this is wave two which is really when the Indian ecosystem started getting noticed by the world. Tiger came in and did a bunch of investments and made a lot of money. Then mysteriously disappeared as well, somewhere in the middle. So this was 2010 to 16. 16 is important. And I see the wave two ending in 16 and wave three beginning. Because wave three is really the post-geo era, post-geo UPI era, the smartphone as a native UI model. Second time founders coming back. India too emerging as a relevant category. I think in wave three, I haven't seen anything distinctive to watershed moment yet. Maybe one or two more years, we'll see wave three unfolding. And typically in each of these eras or waves, there is one hero sector. Wave zero would be software services. Wave one would be marketplaces or internet services, enabling people to come aboard. Wave two would be e-commerce and X for India. And wave three would be all of these smartphone as a native UI model. India too, and all of these. And just to put it in context and perspective, like we did earlier when we were talking about the consumer stack, again, the numbers and growth story of the Indian startup ecosystem outside in is just fascinating, particularly when you think about funding, cumulative valuation of these businesses, job growth, and how much percentage of the overall jobs in the Indian economy are now being created by startups, the raw number of startups that are being created. Give us a feel for how some of these numbers look today to where they were roughly five years ago, a decade ago, et cetera. The Indian startup ecosystem in 2013-14 is about a tenth of where it is today in terms of funding. Last year, I mentioned that the Indian startup ecosystem got about $35 billion in funding. And in 2013 or 14, it was a tenth of that. That's been the nature of change. The other one is I like to look at jobs and if you look at jobs over the last six years or so, we've seen a tripling of jobs in the Indian startup ecosystem. About 4 million people are entirely employed. You might think 4 million is small in the context of 1.4 billion. It's actually worth noting that India has a very small and undersized formal labor class. 
is about 50 million or so. A third of this comes from the IT sector, the Infosys, the Cognizants, the TCSs, the Wipros of the world. And I dare say you could make a case for them having expanded the Indian middle class in a way. And certainly a third of the Indian organized labor class, the white collar class comes from the IT, ITS sector. Startups are 12% already. Startups are also able to grow the gig working class, which is unique to Indian startups, the Swiggies, the Zomatos, the Urban Co, other delivery folks. They all have a large number of gig workers, about 4 million in all come through startups and that's a kind of job creation. On valuation, I've seen like a 30-40x jump. If you look at all of the companies in the startup ecosystem in 2014, the cumulative valuation would have been $10 billion. Last year, we saw some statistics saying that it's already crossed $330 billion. That's the kind of growth. In funding, it's grown 10x. In valuation, it's grown 30x. In jobs, it's grown 3 to 4x. These are some of the movements that's happened in the Indian startup ecosystem. From my understanding, the startup story is wildly skewed towards a handful of sectors. In some sense, you could say that's similar to the U.S. In other senses, I think you could actually say that's very dissimilar to the U.S. What are those sectors? And more interestingly, why is capital aggregated behind those spaces? When we looked at the data over the last few years, we saw that e-commerce slash retail tech, enterprise SaaS, fintech, education, edtech, and health tech accounted for pretty much half the flows. And these are mammoth sectors. And I think a lot of it has to do with TAM, or at least the VCs perceiving that this is where the TAM is. And certainly in terms of how they've been able to gather revenues. E-commerce, for example, is easily understandable. 6% of the Indian consumer spends, retail market is online commerce today. Interestingly, the organized retail segment is 11 or 12%. So it's quickly caught up with it and made leapfrog over it very soon. Bulk of it is still the mom and pop stores that they continue to be there, coming back to these five sectors. Fundamentally, it's to do with TAM and how these sectors have been able to take advantage of the perception of TAM as well as deliver and take a slice of the offline share into them. That is what has really driven the dollar share of these five sectors. And each of these sectors has a uniquely interesting story for India. People that are listening will find this probably revelatory. None of the SaaS unicorns have actually come from serving the domestic market. All these SaaS unicorns that have come from India, and maybe you can give us some examples, Sajid, have come from serving global markets. I think that's particularly interesting because one of the lenses that I look at India from and think about India from is this idea of building from India for the world versus Mm -hmm. building for the world using India. So the 1.0 of the Indian technology sector, you were describing Infosys earlier, just offshoring labor and really leveraging India as a low-cost country. But now global SaaS companies are being built from India for the world. So maybe give us a better understanding. We can use SaaS as an example of some of these nuances in each of these sectors. But what's going on in SaaS in India? And what are the interesting characteristics of how these stories are uniquely Indian, as opposed to what we in the West or abroad might extrapolate or might think of? SaaS is a fascinating sector. The first wave of SaaS in India would be companies such as Zoho, Freshworks, Drua, later Zenoti, and so on and so forth. And I'll double click on what's common to these. They're all born in India, take advantage of a cheaper tech talent in India, product managers, engineers, but really understand the challenges that specific Western ICP or Western user has 
and create a value SaaS offering for them, which is cheaper to what is there globally. They're able to grow on the back of not only a well-put-together product, which is cheap and very good for the price it is at, but also a very clever playbook of using inside sales teams from India, which are cheaper with some presence in the West. So they perfected this entire playbook and grew rapidly. And so I think the first wave of SaaS is what I typically call value SaaS. For example, the charge bees or the Zenotis, which is salon software to Freshworks, which is IPO'd last year and so on. Off late, there are a bunch of what I call innovator SaaS companies emerging. So Postman is the canonical example. They are basically in the API space and they power API infrastructure for companies. Then there is a browser stack. Then there is Lambda Test, Hasura. There'll be a few more coming, which are really fundamentally innovation plays. They're really taking advantage of tech and they're not value plays entirely. This is sort of a SaaS story in India. Interesting stat. This year, it's estimated that Indian companies will tap into close to 10% of a global SaaS revenue. That's a share that they're able to extract. Till a few years back, it was 3-4%. So they've been able to dramatically grow, both at the back of funding. So a lot of the SaaS companies in India are beginning to get seen by the Western venture capitalists. And they're also growing fast. So they're able to attract more money and they're able to use this to make inroads into the Western market. So interestingly, Zoho and Freshworks both have 90% of their revenue from international markets. India is very small for them. Well, they're born in India, they build for the world. So the playbook is fundamentally different for domestic SaaS, right? One of the interesting things for folks that are listening is domestic SaaS in India is known as Bharat SaaS. Bharat also means India. I'm curious to get your take on how that business model differs And why do companies run this playbook of SaaS to be successful in India versus just following the playbook that has now been established? What's very common and typical in startup ecosystems, you see this in the US a lot with enterprise SaaS companies, is the mystery for enterprise SaaS was really those first pioneer companies that developed into successful companies and successful products. Now there's a very proven and tried playbook around how do you grow SaaS sales and marketing teams? If you're fundraising, what are the SaaS metrics that you should have, et cetera? In India, it's something different that's going on, which is we've had these successful unicorns, we've had these successful playbooks. But again, when we look inwardly as opposed to externally, we really have to think about the business model and the use case fundamentally differently. So maybe contrast what's going on with Bharat SaaS versus this traditional global SaaS business model. So when you build for India and when you want your product to be purchased by Indian enterprises or Indian SMB players, you run into a couple of challenges. One, there just aren't that many large Indian enterprises or that many margin-rich SMBs who can afford your product. It is a challenge getting Indian SMBs, even Indian enterprises to pay. There's a very funny story of this OG Indian product company called Tally, very popular accounting software that is used by almost every Indian SMB and even some enterprises. Some of our startups use them. They estimated that at one point, 90% of all the tally products in India were pirated. Just impossible to get people to pay for it. This is the fundamental challenge. How do you get SMB? How do you get enterprise to pay when they themselves are not making as much money? What Indian uh, startups, what Bharat SaaS startups have done is hit upon this idea of giving the product either at a very low price or free. 
and use it as a wedge to build a great relationship with the consumer and explore if they can use the data to suggest either lending or help these SMBs sell products and take a cut of that. So Khata Book, for instance, provides a free bookkeeping SaaS. And what they're trying to do is use the data of what is owed between each to see if lending can be layered on top. Class Plus, a very interesting EdTech Shopify. They have a software which helps all of these mom and pop EdTech shops interact with students, provide learning solutions, etc. And also sell a particular test prep solution or course offering and takes a cut of that. So there are these interesting experiments underway. The term that I like to use for Bharat SaaS internally is SaaStra, which is SaaS plus transactions, because SaaS by itself is not enough in a margin-poor, volatile country like India. I hope that helps you contrast these two global tech SaaS as well as Bharat SaaS playbooks. It does. And I think the juxtaposition is actually particularly interesting because one of the frameworks that's helpful when trying to understand India is understanding how one business model or one consumer type or one segment may make sense in one sense, but it doesn't in the other. One of the interesting quote unquote contradictions or pieces to parse through is just the idea of English generally in India. So it's taking this a step back But we talked about the English tax earlier. I'm curious to actually get the opposite side effect of that, because from the West, the perspective is actually, this is a huge soft power of India, as opposed to, let's say, dealing with China. Today, I think India has probably the fourth largest base of English speakers over time. That's going to grow to the third, to the second. There may be a point in time in the future, just from a population numbers perspective, where India is the most populous English speaking country in the world. That's certainly a possibility. I'm curious how you think about the implications of having that many English speakers in the country. I wonder about it too. And a few years back, I wrote this article talking about the rise of a community I call Indo-Anglians, native Indians who are also native English speakers. That's a very small proportion of them. And you begin to see them. Kids, for example, are far more native in English and not, for example, Punjabi or Bengali or sometimes even Hindi. But this is a very tiny population. A lot of Indians, I estimate about 30 million people, the fourth largest in the world, are what I call English fluents. Like me, they can speak English very well and get mistaken for native English speakers globally, etc. But there's also a larger English comfortable, which is about a 3x the size, about 130 million, who are able to understand broadly. The English fluent category of 30-35 million people is growing very fast. Right now, they're behind, for example... UK and Canada, just ahead of Australia. One day there'll be more than Canada. So I think you're right. There will be a tremendous advantage for India to have. And I dare say the success of the Indian startup ecosystem is a testament to this community. And as this gets bigger, I also feel that a lot of products that come out of India, for example, it'll be Indian movies, which could be made in English. I don't know if you know, there's a singer called Pratik Kuhad who was on Barack Obama's list of favorite artists a couple of years back. So there's a bunch of these indie folk artists, Raghav Miatil, Local Trade, who occasionally sing in English. And Pratik Ward, of course, they are the one canonical example. Art, culture, media is where I think the soft superpower will get expressed. I think that's where it'll get expressed. The great English novel in the next 20, 30 years could easily come out of an Indian writer. Jumpa Lahari is there, but she's also a US citizen now writing Italian, interestingly. I do feel this large number of 
fluent English speakers are huge advantage. It's really interesting, especially as someone of Indian origin that's grown up in the U.S. A lot of the founders that I talk to and have invested in. One of the founders told me something that I thought was particularly striking when I had asked him this question of what are some of the counterintuitive things that people in the West don't think about when it comes to India, Indian startups, Indian culture, etc. And he made this statement to me, which I'll never forget, which was this generation of Indians grew up, especially in India One A and India One, watching things like Friends and Seinfeld. He said this phrase to me, which was, "It's not that we just watched Americans; we wanted to be Americans." From a cultural perspective, there's a very interesting draw there. You have a really interesting analogy on this. You said if Israel was akin to the 51st state of the U.S. for B to B, India would be the 51st state of the U.S. for B to C. And I think the idea of having this many English speakers also reflects in that analogy. I think that's actually a really provocative and interesting statement. Absolutely, and it actually takes reference to the earlier statement of yours about Indians watching Friends and Seinfeld and really identifying with it. Because a lot of the English products and media that Indians consume have been created by the US or UK, US largely, a lot of the Indians feel very comfortable with US products. Like they know what the Super Bowl is. They, in fact, read more about what's happening in US as far as politics goes or Hollywood, much more than they read about the equivalent counterpart here. A lot of Indians are very comfortable with the US. What it means is that. Just as Israel, with its eight nine million population, oversized military industrial economy, when all the products that came out of that, it really had to find market in the U.S. first because Israel was too small for it. So similarly, I feel that over the next decade or two, the products that are going to come out of India on the consumer side will find what I call Indranagar market fit or Bandra market fit. These are affluent areas in Indian cities, which are kind of islands of affluence. That very quickly move to finding, get launched in the U.S. and find product market fit in the U.S. They're going to use India as test labs, really, because the affluent Indian population, for example, can quickly be a dipstick for them to see that hey, does this make sense or not? And they try and use the playbooks that are beginning to emerge, which is content marketing, drop shipping, 3D printing, and manufacturing. All of these are emerging and going to make it easier and easier. The infrastructure is coming together, and it's going to make it easier and easier for Indians to launch either services. I've already come across Indian startups selling hundred-dollar yoga courses into the U.S. There'll be mental health services being provided, but increasingly, I feel even consumer products will get launched in India, not just apps. And that is really what I'm trying to say here. India One A is the U.S.'s fifty-first state, really. A final question for you today, Sajid. Before we end, we've talked a lot in this conversation about the promise of India, how the Indian consumer stack actually segments, a lot of the energy around what's going on in startups specifically, and just general excitement that's abound in the country. You've said this other interesting phrase previously, which is you're long on Indians, but you're neutral on India. And I'd love for you to unpack that as we round out, just to share the nuance. Despite the entire conversation we've had today, why it's not really a predetermined outcome that India will win over the long term? I am very bullish and long on Indians, long on our community's ingenuity, inventiveness. The Indian diaspora is a great reflection of that. The success that I've had in global markets, especially in the U.S., is a great testament to that. India is a very complex, large economy with multiple pushes and pulls. India One is growing. 
the escape velocity is a little slower than in Korea, for instance, and it will grow at its own pace, whereas Indians have already hit escape velocity. The success of Indian SaaS companies abroad, the success of the Indian startup ecosystems, all a testament to the fact that Indians are succeeding. India will grow. India will succeed. I don't think we also have to take into account the fact that India is fundamentally a country with $2,000 per capita income. So there are multiple pushes and pulls. There's an English tax, there's also a regulatory tax. We've seen that, for example, with crypto. It's a great example of how we could have done that better. And the entire crypto economy in India today is migrated to Dubai. Whereas Aadhaar, the entire public digital infrastructure is a great example of what we've got. So India is a country where I feel there are multiple spools and pressures. Indians, for instance, are actually doing exceptionally well. And that is perhaps what I meant in that statement. It's not a judgment on anything. It's just that Indians are growing much faster than the idea of India itself. And that's what I really meant. I love that. Sajid, this was great. I feel like we could talk about these topics for hours, but I really appreciate you spending the time with us today and greatly enjoyed digging in deeper into what's going on in India. Hey, thanks, Romina. I enjoyed this as well. This was fun. To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com, where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. Thank you.